Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Rebecca DeWolf, the author of Gendered Citizenship, the Original Conflict Over the Equal Rights Amendment, 1920 to 1963. Her writing has appeared in the Washington Post. She teaches at American University, which is also where she got her PhD. She knows it well. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. DeWolf. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you about my book and my research on the ERA. Awesome. Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. The right to vote is, in theory, a cure-all. Once you can vote, you have input into your tax bill, whether you can have an abortion, sometimes the rules of voting itself. But in American history, the best laid plans, dot, dot, dot. Even after blacks were guaranteed the right to vote in 1965, they're still overrepresented in jail and underrepresented in home ownership. Women got the right to vote in 1920, but are still making less money than men and are only 27% of U.S. House members. The Equal Rights Amendment, which is still not adopted, was proposed in 1923. It says equal rights shall not be denied on account of sex. What was the original case, Dr. DeWolf, for passing the ERA after the 19th Amendment? So I'm so glad that you brought up the 19th Amendment because the 19th Amendment really set the stage for the original ERA conflict. And if you'll allow me, I'm just going to go into a little bit of why the the 19th Amendment is so important for understanding the ERA. Um, So the 19th Amendment upset the legal paradigm in the United States that had given men authority over women in law and in custom because it removed uh, sex as a valid reason for withholding the right to vote. And it implicitly acknowledged women's ability to hold their own civic identities. So as I discussed in length in the first chapter of my book, the United States legal tradition was founded on a profound commitment to the maleness of rights-bearing citizenship. So U.S. legal and political authorities understood white women and then after the Civil War, black women to be citizens and that they were inhabitants of the country. But when it came to being a full citizen or a citizen who enjoyed all the rights of citizenship, United States laws and customs continued to deny women the status of rights-bearing citizenship because women were seen to be essentially weak, independent creatures who required extra special legal protection. So I'm not going to go into all the legal history about the original masculine conception of full U.S. citizenship. If anyone's interested in that, they can read the first part of my book. <laughs> but, but, what all that um, means, but what all that means basically is, right, is that women were counted on the ledger, but they couldn't go into the vote and influence politics. So there was a lot of things that women couldn't do before and after the 19th Amendment. Um, so it's really important to know and to recognize that the idea of sex, the category of sex, was commonly used as a valid reason for restricting women's opportunities and their overall autonomy in law and in custom. So before and after the 19th Amendment, there were an array of sex-specific laws and policies that denied women the ability to hold public office, serve on juries, work in certain occupations, have an independent nationality status. And there were also an array of sex-based laws that continued to favor husbands and fathers over wives and daughters with regard to property, earnings, contracting, inheritance, and guardianship rights. And those sex-specific laws and customs continued after the 19th Amendment. Um, So when the 19th Amendment removed sex as a valid reason for withholding the right to vote in 1920, a big question came up. Um, Can sex still be used as a valid reason for determining all these other rights? Um, And so from that big question, other ones came out, like, Uh, What were the constitutional effects of the 19th Amendment? Did voter status command other rights? Um, Do women now hold the same civic status as men? If not, what is their legal personhood? Should the law treat men and women on the same terms? And then from those questions, the big underlying question was, 
what were the rights of citizenship after all? And so the debates over the transformative possibilities of the 19th Amendment played out in several court cases and in the political discourse of the era. But for us, for our discussion today, um, those debates eventually evolved into the original conflict over the ERA as two different ways of thinking about rights and sex and citizenship um, emerged. And we can talk about those habits of thought later too. The book opens with a quote from, um, at that point, future Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter, perhaps the best named of all the justices, right? Felix Frankfurter. Uh, I want to read that quote. Um, okay. The quote is, nature made man and woman different. The law must accommodate itself to the immutable differences of nature. ERA supporters cannot amend nature. Um was Justice Frankfurter encapsulating the conventional wisdom of the day okay. that men and women were just different and that the law couldn't account for that? The law couldn't that, account that, for that. That law had to account for that. So I'm sorry, I'm yes, so the happy. law had to yeah. account for that. Yes. yes, so I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, and I hope I won't go off on a tangent here. So there's two things I want to say to that. Um, in the original ERA conflict, so in the 1920s up to the early 1960s, uh, the predominant way of thinking about the differences between men and women was um, like a biological determinism. So let's see, I wrote a note here so I wouldn't get lost in my thoughts. Um, in the original conflict, both ERA supporters and opponents didn't separate the idea of sex. So when I say sex, I mean general anatomical attributes found within the spectrums of male and female persons. Uh, from gender, and gender broadly refers to the qualities and values that a society attaches to men and women. Um, so in the original conflict, the participants on both sides, ERA supporters and opponents, didn't separate that notion of gender from the notion of sex. They believed that men and women were inherently different. Um, so ERA supporters, though, believed that, or, so both ERA supporters and ERA opponents believed that women were biologically destined to be society's caretakers, and nurturers. The difference is ERA supporters just thought that women should be able to uh, choose how they would exercise their benevolent nature, like whether through motherhood or some other compassionate cause. And ERA opponents believe that motherhood embodied womanhood and that all women were either mothers or potential mothers and that the law had to recognize that. Um, ERA supporters, in contrast, believe that even though there were differences supposedly between men and women, the law didn't need to take that into account, that sex in and of itself shouldn't be a legitimate reason for determining somebody's rights. Um, and that Felix Frankfurter quote gets to that idea of biological determinism that pervaded the original conflict. Um, and, but he's speaking from obviously the ERA opposition side. Um, and so if you'll let me just go off on please, another yeah. point, if you don't yeah, mind. Um, so Frankfurter is such an interesting character because he was involved in the ERA struggle from the very beginning. Um, so one of the things I write about in the first part of my book is this really arduous effort to draft the ERA that a lot of people don't know about. Every, I think a lot of people just assumed, you know, the 19th Amendment passed and then right away they knew to write the ERA. And that's just not true. Um, there was, in the beginning around spring of 1921, an effort to write an additional amendment, which would later become the ERA. But in the beginning stages, that amendment was more seen as like a clarifying, clarifying amendment, which was to resolve these issues around what women's rights should be after the, uh, after the vote. Because as I had said, so many laws and customs still denied women the opportunity and ability to do many things in public life. And so many laws and customs still denied women personal autonomy in the home. So there was this effort to write a clarifying amendment and Alice Paul took the lead in that effort. And I think some of your listeners might know who she is um, in case they don't. She was an incredibly influential suffrage leader, um, very important, important to the passage of the 19th Amendment. She's sometimes known as more like the militant side of the suffrage movement, very forceful and assertive in her approach to get the amendment ratified. Um, so after the ratification of the 19th Amendment in the spring of 1921, Alice Paul recognized that there, there was going to need to be something else that had to come after the 19th Amendment because all these restrictions remained on women and the 19th Amendment wasn't going to be able to resolve them in and of itself. So she, along with a man named Albert Levitt, who was an up and coming legal scholar who was working on securing women's rights in certain areas, um, 
he and also uh, Alice Paul's good friend, Elsie Hill, they got together and they decided, okay, we're going to write another amendment. We're going to call it a, women, a Women's Bill of Rights. And this amendment's going to secure women's rights in certain areas. And Alice Paul went out intentionally um, to gather feedback and get other people involved in the drafting process. And Felix Frankfurt was one of those people that she reached out to, as well as Roscoe Pound, um, Florence Kelly of the National Consumers League. She assisted a little bit in the beginning, as well as Ethel Smith of the National Women's Trade Union League, um, Mary Anderson, the Women's Bureau. So, and also actually Dean Atchison, who's known more so now for his roles of uh, foreign policy advisor to several presidents, but he actually helped down the beginning too. And Alice Paul wrote one letter that she had written about a couple of hundred different drafts of what would be the ERA. Albert Levitt wrote, um, I think, 75. So there was this big collaborative effort that was going on to write an additional amendment that would clarify women's legal personhood. Um, and it went from the spring and summer of 1921. And then in the fall of 1921, things started to fall apart because the participants couldn't agree upon the form and the content and the intent of the, the amendment. So some of the people involved, uh, like Albert Levitt actually, um, and Florence Kelly, they really wanted the amendment to secure women's rights in certain areas, like women's right to serve on juries. Um, yeah, talk, also, talk, about, talk about some of the things that they wanted out of this amendment. So, so in the beginning, the amendment was very specific to secure women's right to serve on juries, to secure women's right to hold public office. I'll get into the other legal uh, restrictions in a bit, but one of the things that they couldn't actually agree upon was the rights that they were trying to secure. <laughs> so um, one of the primary rights that this group wanted, not Alice Paul, I'm talking about Albert Levitt here and Florence Kelly and some others, they wanted the amendment, Roscoe Pound too, they wanted the amendment to include a clause that would secure what they believed to be women's natural right to special protection. In their minds, women needed to be treated differently from men in certain instances because women were either mothers or potential mothers, and that necessitated the extra special legal protection of the government. Um, and at this point in fall, winter 1921, Alice Paul was not committed to that idea. She wasn't against it but she wasn't for it. And she said to them, I, I'm just not, I, I won't commit to that. And because she, she wouldn't commit to it, they decide we're out. We're not gonna help you anymore. We're done with this. So that was actually quite a turbulent time for Alice Paul. And she decided to put the amendment on hold in the winter 1921. And she launched an extensive investigation into the legal status of women with her um, organization, the National Women's Party, NWP, in the beginning of 1922. And this project is incredibly important for anyone that's interested in the history of sex discrimination. So many of the laws uh, that restricted women's opportunities and autonomy were uh, state level, and they varied from state to state, so it was actually quite confusing. So what Alice Paul and the National Women's Party did was investigate all of the variations in women's rights and the laws um, from state to state, record them, investigate them, see if any of them were beneficial or if um, they were harmful for women. And um, just to give you a sampling of some of the laws that were that, that the NWP found in their research. So in 40 states, property acquired through the joint efforts of husband and wife still belong to the husband. In some states, married women's earnings legally belong to their husbands. Several states still restricted women's ability to enter into contracts without their husband's consent. As I already said, many states denied women the right to serve on juries. Many states denied women the right to hold public office. Um, in some states, the father alone had the right to administer a child's estate. Some states, the father had a right to will away the custody of a child from its mother. Some states, the father alone was entitled to the services and earnings of a minor child. Many states still prohibited women from working in certain occupations, like being a bus driver and a streetcar conductor. Um, let's see. So, it, it, yep. so if you were a girl born in, I don't know, Maybe a good, maybe 1905 is a good year to start with. If you were a girl born in that year, what were your prospects? What was what did life have in store for you? To marry and to have children. <laughs> that was the, that was the two, thought process. Two things. Yeah, two I mean things. that was. And then death would come. So so, yeah. so much of the law. I mean, there were social influences that obviously restricted women's um, opportunities too, and we can get into that in a minute, but. The top priority for the ERA supporters were these laws 
literally laws that restricted women's um, opportunities because, I mean, they're going after a constitutional amendment and inherently the amendment is to fix these laws, right? Um, and much of the laws were built around this uh, tradition in the American legal sy system that held that women were primarily supposed to go get married and to have children and that they would be covered, it's called coverture, they'd be covered by their husbands. So the idea is that, um, let's see, men had economic domain over their wives and uh, men also had a right to the services of their wives' bodies, whether through their domestic labor or whether through childbearing. So the laws represented this bias of men are the providers, they go out and provide shelter and financial support for the, their wives, and women look after the home and they provide their husbands with children. And the thinking was, if you're not um, covered by your husband, then you're covered by your dad. So you're covered by the male head of the household. And take us back, uh, take us back even before the 1920s and even before the year I just mentioned, 1905. Um, <laughs> who, who were the first Americans to suggest the idea that men and women could be treated equally under the law? <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, that's a good question. <laughs> Um, I, I think, I mean, so one of the things I, I'll answer part way, and then I want to get to another point that your question raises. Um, you could look at the uh, women's activism of the mid-1800s as starting this idea of equal rights, but it's just, it's, it's like apples and oranges, really, because they also believe that men and women were inherently different, but that the law should still recognize them as having equal value. And then you can get into arguments that they want equal legal treatment or not. Um, as I was doing my research, what I thought was so important was in this National Women's Party research project into the legal status of women, it was when they were uncovering all these different laws and how they impacted women's status that they came up with their own way of thinking about what they need to get done. And through that process of researching women's legal status, they came to this idea of, oh, we need to have a complete, we need to have an amendment that will secure complete constitutional sexual equality. So the idea of the ERA to have absolute sexual equality sprung from that research project. And that's why that research project is so important. So it wasn't just a natural snap the fingers, 19th Amendment's done, Alice Paul knew right away that she won the ERA, what the ERA was gonna look like. It was actually, um, something that was a slow development through this research and this uncovering of um, the variations in women's legal status. So once the um, NWP got all these, you know, this great information and details about how these uh, sex-specific laws were restricting women's opportunities, they really came around to the idea that we want an amendment that's going to secure complete constitutional sexual equality. It's not going to include a provision that upholds this idea of women needing um, special protection because any kind of sex-specific treatment can't be benevolent in the eyes of the NWP because it's built around the idea that women are inferior and dependent on men, and then that leads to harmful laws against women. So in their mind, the only way to free women from the subservient status that they had occupied in the U.S. legal tradition would be an amendment that secured absolute constitutional sexual equality and held men and women to the same standards. Was there a second part to the answer to your question? Because I... <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I looked my second part in okay, there. Okay, you so. got it. All right. Okay. Uh, 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 what, there are two concepts in the book that I really want you to get into here. One of them is emancipationism, and I hope I'm saying that right. Yep. The other one is protectionism. And so the, you have those two things kind of set the tone for, or I guess the motifs that you cover in the book. So explain what those two terms mean, emancipationism and protectionism, in the context of your argument and discussion. Sure. So um, as I was saying before, the arduous and stressful and quite contentious effort to draft the ERA led to these two very different ways of thinking about American citizenship um, and the ways that sex should impact a citizen's rights. So on the one hand, you have emancipationists and emancipationists support the ERA. They were ERA supporters and they backed the amendment as a way to guarantee that men and women could participate as citizens on the same terms. And I'll get more into that term in a second. I just want to define protectionists. Um, Protectionists opposed the ERA um, 
they were ERA opponents. And they opposed the amendment as a threat to what they saw to be women's natural right to special protection. They believed that the different societal functions of men and women required sex-based rights. So let me dive into emancipationists a little bit more because um, anyone who hasn't read the book might find it confusing. Um, so I use the words emancipationist and emancipationism to capture the pro-ERA position because ERA supporters often drew on the notion of fully emancipating women from a legal system that has historically given men authority over women. So, in fact, they actually often use the exact word emancipate when describing the ERA's purpose. And in my book, I you know, discuss several different quotes and passages of ERA supporters using this term emancipate um, when they're describing what they want the ERA to do. And another important note to say is Alice Paul, when she decided to start drafting the ERA by herself, um, she worded her, or she based the wording of her original draft on the phrasing of the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment is the amendment that uh, freed enslaved persons um, after the Civil War in uh, December 1865. So in Alice Paul's mind, um, her understanding of the marital status law tradition, which gave uh, husbands dominion over their wives, that formed a type of involuntary servitude for wives. Um, so at first she was thinking her amendment would ensure that wives were emancipated from this long uh, tradition of being subservient to their husbands. Um, but as she got into the research and looked more and more into the different laws that affected women, she realized it wasn't just married women that were suffering from this legal tradition, it was also just women in general. So that's why she decided to make her amendment be even broader in its scope and have it um, you know, ensure women and men, not just married women and men, had equal rights. But back to the idea of emancipationists, and the idea in the mind of emancipationists, persistent legal restrictions on women's opportunities and autonomy created not only fluctuating definitions of women's legal personhood, but also constitutional inconsistencies with the regards to the rights of American citizens. So for emancipationists, complete constitutional sexual equality was the only way to fully emancipate a class of voters from their legal subjugation. And I just want to add one more thing. I promise I'm not going to continue to ramble here, just one no, more important no thing. So in the 1920s, uh, the majority of emancipationists or the majority of ERA supporters were uh, members of the National Women's Party. But as the ERA gained in popularity and strength in the 1930s and 1940s, the emancipationist position expanded to include pronounced conservative and liberal uh, variations. So you ended up having conservative ERA supporters and liberal ERA supporters. And liberal ERA supporters, I just want to make sure I say this right, they saw the amendment as a way to secure social benefits so that they apply to the male or to, so that they apply to men and women citizens equally. So they saw the amendment as a way to kind of expand the government's um, involvement and to ensure social well-being and economic security. Conservative emancipationists saw the amendment in terms of more like negative rights to make sure the government didn't intrude on people's lives. Um, they saw the amendment as a way to ensure that women could compete in the marketplace on the same terms of men and that women would be able to have a right to economic self-fulfillment. So, well, and then I can get into protectionists too if well, you want. <laughs> one of the things that I thought was so interesting though about the book is that the argument that you make is that the fight over the ERA became a proxy or foreshadowed the eventual lines drawn in American politics between liberal liberalism and conservatism. Um, explain why you think that is and how we can view today's politics in through the prism of this original fight between liberals and conservatives over the ERA. So um that's an interesting question. So one of the things that I actually try really hard to do on my book is to show that the ERA has a very long history of transcending and surpassing conventional categories of political ideology. So in the original conflict, you had conservative and liberal supporters of the ERA and conservative and liberal opponents of the ERA. So even though by the 1970s, certain societal developments pushed the conflict in a way that 
it aligned with what we now assume to be traditional um, positions, you know, liberals backing the call for complete equality and uh, conservatives insisting on traditional gender roles. Um, at its roots, the original ERA conflict is actually not a typical political fight. It's actually a fight about the rights of citizenship. So it's important to recognize that as the original ERA conflict shows us, conservatism and liberalism are not inherently tied to either the pro or anti-ERA position. There is a potential for conservative emancipationists to come back to the forefront. And there's also a potential for liberal ERA opponents to come back to the forefront. So that's one of the things I try to stress a little bit. It appears in the 1970s that this is a natural wedge issue between Republicans and Democrats or conservatives and liberals. But in actuality, there are variations in both positions. So. What's really interesting um, is we have done many episodes of this podcast where it's female and minority voices that have been written out of history. And the author is trying to bring female and minority voices back into um, the way we commonly understand history and historical events. But in this case, you argue it was the men whose stories were <laughs> glossed over. And thank goodness, right? Um, well, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But yeah. <laughs> why, why did that happen? And what did that reveal about pop culture and, and scholarship of the fight for women's rights? Okay, so... Um I, want, I think what you're referring to is the op-ed that I wrote in the Washington Post about needing to bring men back into yeah. the story of the ERA. So I want to first just say that I don't mean that men should be centered over women in the history of the ERA. Yeah, no, I, um, we, yeah, I got that, yeah. <laughs> but I, what I'm trying but you, to do... But you argue their story is really important in the ERA. Yes. So yeah. what I'm trying to do is, with my book and my research is take a, a wider view of the ERA conflict before the 1970s state ratification battle. So not just looking in the 20s, not just looking in the 70s, but seeing how the original conflict was in the 20s all the way up into the uh, early 1960s. And one of the reasons I think it's important to bring men back in and not just focus on the conflict as a limited conflict with women just fighting with each other um, is because then you start to see some of the more um, deeper issues that were at play. So I just want to back up. When I first came to the ERA in graduate school many years ago, um, like 2009, I, it's like when I first started my research on it, I had to read a book for a graduate course, Susan Douglas's Where the Girls Are. It's a book on the history of uh, the media's portrayal of women. And she had this great take on that the ERA is typically portrayed as the classic cat fight, you know, that this imagery of women just can't get along. They're just constantly fighting with each other. Um, and this, the, and the suggestion of that imagery is that this is why women aren't fit for leadership positions. And that really impacted how I approached the ERA struggle. A lot of the literature on the ERA in its earliest years focuses on the conflict in the immediate years after the 19th Amendment, there's a fight between two types of feminists um, over the priorities of uh, women's activism. And it's, that literature is very important for the history of the women's movement and the history of feminism. But as I was digging, I was realizing, wow, it's not just feminists that are involved in this conflict. There's a lot of other people that aren't necessarily, that were not necess necessarily involved in the suffrage campaign. And they're not just arguing about uh, you know, women's activism and the trajectory of the women's movement. They're arguing about things like, you know, what role should sex play in determining a citizen's right and is sex a legitimate legal classification? And so you get to these deeper ideas about um, the rights of citizenship. And when you bring men back into it and also just look at women who weren't necessarily associated with the suffrage movement, you see how conservatives and liberals were not directly opposed to each other in the original conflict. You also see how Republicans and Democrats weren't directly opposed to each other. And feminists were on both sides of the issue. And you also see that men and women were on both sides of the issue. So you begin to see how complicated and layered the conflict was and how it calls into um, question so many of the assumptions that many of us might hold to be true about uh, US history. So who won? Um, you argue the protectionists. The protection <laughs> yeah, you argue the protectionists won because yeah. we're still waiting for the ERA. Um, yeah, how so, did they? How did they win? And how did the emancipationists underestimate them? It's a great question. So um, I think I should probably because I don't know if I actually defined protectionists that well. It's oh, a complicated. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. yeah, it's a complicated um, 
term, and I want to be able to dig into it a little bit because some people might be confused with the way I use it if they haven't read my book. Um, so as I use it in my book, protectionism represents a specific way of reasoning that primarily arose after the passage of the 19th Amendment. So I'm not referring exclusively to advocates of special labor legislation. For those that don't know, special labor legislation arose in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as a way to regulate women's working conditions and shield them from economic exploitation. So these were sex-specific laws that determined, it, that determined the jobs and tasks that women could do, and it regulated women's hours of work. And they also provide for minimum wages for women. And they were all based on this idea that women were mothers or potential mothers, and the government had a responsibility to provide them with extra special legal protection. But as I describe in my book, the protectionist habit of mind not only included liberal-minded people who opposed the ERA and backed special labor laws for women, it also included conservative individuals who did not like labor laws. Um, so to put simply, protectionism espouses the virtues of sex-specific rights, and it encompasses the core ideas behind the anti-ERA stance because both conservative and liberal ERA opponents criticized the ERA as a threat to the sex-based legal distinctions that upheld what they understood to be women's natural right to special protection. I just want to take a moment here to um, further describe the conservative and uh, liberal uh, protectionist position. So both conservative and liberal protectionists believed that women needed special protection. They just differed from where they thought that protection should come from. So for conservative uh, protectionists, women's special protection should come from the male head of the household. And for liberal protectionists, um, they believe that government reform efforts could also serve as effective instruments of protection for women. So that's the key difference between the two of them. Even with those differences, they both believe that the law need to recognize um, women's uh, need for special protection. A shared desire to preserve the law's ability to treat men and women differently on account of sex after the passage of the 19th Amendment fueled the protectionist position. Alongside this desire, protectionists believe that while women should be respected as rights-bearing citizens, they didn't want the law to categorically group women's rights with men's rights. And as I describe in my book, protectionists reasoned that actual sexual fairness meant securing two distinct but equally valued sets of rights for men and women citizens. So a key point here is that, um, as you especially see with the original ERA conflict, the arguments against the ERA didn't simply revolve around the idea that women shouldn't have rights or that they should be denied their rights as citizens. In actuality, ERA opponents assisted that they were the ones who were protecting women's rights as citizens. So this is maybe a little confusing, but it's important. Um, through the course of the original ERA conflict, protectionists moved the argument against equal rights or equal legal treatment away from a pre-19th Amendment emphasis on the reasons to exclude women from certain rights of citizenship towards a post-19th Amendment emphasis on the need to protect and develop a distinct citizenship for women that supposedly came with its own set of rights. So in this process, protectionists ended up redefining the concept of American citizenship away from what had been a single gender masculine model to a dual gender model that includes separate but equally valued sets of rights for men and women. For protectionists, women's special rights included being exempted from military service, shielded from the ravages of capitalism, and kept safe in their domestic roles. So um, what was your original question? Sorry. Oh, it was, uh, it was just um, how did emancipationists underestimate the protectionists? That's a good question. Um, so I don't want to go off into another tangent, but I just need to make another point really quickly, if you'll bear with me. Um, in the 1920s, protections were absolutely dominant. Most people did not want the ERA. There was still a profound societal attachment to the idea that um, men were providers and women were caregivers. Um, and that the law needed to recognize these differences, which that aligned with the protectionist call for separate rights between men and women. But the idea that the ERA just sat silently and didn't go anywhere until the 1970s is not a full or accurate picture of the original ERA conflict. In the 1930s and the 1940s, the ERA made considerable um, gains and momentum. By 1946, it looked like the ERA was ready for a vote in both houses of Congress, which is 
quite um, achieve, an achievement for where it had been in the 20s. There was also a lot of other developments too. A lot more people were coming out in support of it. More organizations were backing it. So it was looking really good for the ERA by 1946. And that forced the protectionists to start to rethink how they were going to be approaching um, the ERA. So um, I don't want to go into too many details here, but what the protectionists did in the post-World War II era is they reorganized themselves into a unified opposition group to coordinate their attacks on the ERA. And that group was the National Committee to Defeat the Unequal Rights Amendment, which later changed its name to the National Committee on the Status of Women. Um, and there was a lingering amount of support for the ERA in the late 1940s, early 1950s. And the ERA kept on coming back around, like it was brought to the Senate floor in 1946. It was brought again in 1950 to the Senate floor and 1953. And this was really annoying to protectionists. So what they ended up doing was realizing that they couldn't just simply be against the amendment. They had to offer up their own alternative comprehensive measures that would allow for the law to recognize women as rights-bearing citizens without also displacing the law's ability to treat men and women differently on account of sex. And so this is where you see protectionists offering up things like the Women's Status Bill, the Hayden Rider, liberal protectionists who were behind the Equal Pay Act, and also the President's Commission on the Status of Women is the big one. And that's why I end my book in 1963, because that's when the President's Commission on the Status of Women released its final report. Um, so I don't know if it's so much that emancipation is underestimated um, protectionists. Maybe in some ways they did. I don't know if I ever really thought of it that way. I think in my mind, it was more protectionists realized that they had to amend, you know, pun intended, their uh, opposition strategy to kind of realize that women's position in society was changing and that they had to offer up their own solutions to those changes. Who are the heirs today politically to those different sides? Yeah, that's a great question. So. Um, I think most people are familiar with the 70s ERA struggle, which is when you see um, societal developments pushing the conflict in such a way that it starts to align with what we believe to be these um, you know, innate positions. Conservatives backing uh, traditional gender roles and liberals backing uh, complete constitutional sexual equality. And that the difference with the second ERA conflict is um, a new perception of the relationship between gender and citizenship started to emerge by the late 1960s. So did I say the new relation, a new perception of the relationship between gender and sex, sorry, not citizenship. So by the late 1960s, intellectuals and activists started to separate the concept of gender away from the concept of sex. So before you had a biological determinism pervading the ERA struggle, by the 70s, you have more of a cultural and fluid understanding of gender differences such that it, people started to think that a lot of the differences between men and women might be socially created concepts and not, um, you know, biologically determined products of nature. It's so, the way we act around each other. It's the socialization. It's yeah, the yeah. Exactly. societal cues. Exactly. So that change in how people were understanding men and women theoretically expanded the societal position of women behind, beyond, beyond uh, what had been perceived to be biologically inescapable roles in the home. So now you have more liberals coming towards the ERA and backing the ERA as a way to support um, providing social benefits for the male or female parent um, in charge of childcare. So as more liberals are coming to the ERA and backing away from that protectionist position, it leaves protectionism in the hands of conservative ERA opponents. So they kind of take over the protectionist um, position, really. So the heirs, you would say, I think, would be, you know, the heir, Phyllis Shafley, what she started with the revitalization of grassroots conservatism. Um, but one thing I think is important, and, you know, I'm going to come back around to something I had said earlier, is that there are conservative variations of emancipationism, and there are liberal variations of protectionism. It's just societal developments have pushed these things in certain ways. So one might be more pronounced at one period of time than the other. And there is a potential that maybe we'll see, you know, a conservative variation of the pro-ERA argument coming out. Just because a politician is liberal 
doesn't mean that their arguments that they're saying is necessarily always going to line up with the pro ERA position. And just because somebody is a conservative, their arguments aren't going to always line up with the anti-ERA position. There's a potential for the ERA to transcend these divides again. The ERA is in a strange state of limbo right now because, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but enough legislatures have ratified it, but others have um, revoked it, gone back on it. Um, What is next? What is the current status of this fight? Will there be an equal rights amendment adopted to the Constitution? Uh, That's such a good question. Um, So... uh, one of the things I stress in my book is that when, the, when society goes through big social upheavals like the Great Depression and World War II, it creates a potential for the dominant cultural consensus to align with the emancipationist position. And I wrote a Washington Post op-ed arguing that same um, idea by drawing it towards uh, the social upheavals that have happened with the pandemic. So there is a potential, again, for things to line more up with uh, the emancipationist way of thinking. You are right that the ERA has recently secured um, the three additional state ratifications that it was it was needing. So Nevada, it secured Nevada in 2017, Illinois in 2018, and Virginia in 2020. The problem is that there's lingering questions about the validity of the deadline that Congress attached to the ERA when it passed the ERA in 1972. And also there's five states that have rescinded their previous ratifications of the ERA. Um, and those state rescissions, the legal status of them is not clear. It, right. You, Can you rescind a yeah. vote on an amendment? Right. There's really great arguments from ERA supporters saying that you can't do that. Um, but from my understanding, the Supreme Court hasn't ruled on this issue yet. So it's kind of um, still up for debate, possibly. Um, but, I, you know, I do think that there is a potential that the pandemic has really brought to light so many of the persistent societal disadvantages that are still holding women back. And there is a potential for ERA supporters to connect the ERA to that problem and to show how that the ERA might help. So the thing is though, what emancipationists had to do during the 1930s and 1940s in order to get the ERA um, moving forward is that they couldn't just rely on the changing conditions. They had to reframe their arguments to directly connect it to the immediate pressing concerns of the political leaders. So, for instance, in the Depression, ERA supporters would argue before Congress, you need to pass the ERA because it will help with the economic recovery. And it will help with the economic recovery because it will allow women to go get jobs and they won't be dependent on men anymore. And then that will help lift everyone up. And then in World War II, again, they kind of reframed their arguments for the ERA by saying things like, if you want to be the champion for democracy around the world, you got to do it at home, pass the ERA to show that you stand proud on the concept of equal rights. So that is an important thing, I think, for ERA supporters to be able to do now. If they really want to take advantage of the changes that are going on right now, they have to directly show how the ERA is an answer to these specific problems. But... What protectionists were able to do in order to regain the higher ground is once you have a situation that kind of throws things around all over the place, a lot of times there's a desire throughout society to return to stability. And protectionists have always kind of taken advantage of that desire by saying, if you want to return to stability, you have to have a return to conventional boundaries between the duties of men and women. What debate over which particular right that you studied during your research um, during the 1920s that sounds a lot like a debate happening today? That's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> Give me a second. I got to think about that. Um, and I, I guess in other words, when you think about, um, when you think about the debates over legal questions and over what women had a right or, you know, not a right to do, um, what echoes do you hear in debates that are happening today? So I think a big one, um, and it's not just the 1920s, like a lot, there are so many different layers and rights that they were going after. Um, but a one that you see persistently coming out again and again is uh, economic independence, women's right to economic independence and women's right to work, right? So allowing women to do things beyond just 
being predestined to stay at home with their children, allowing women to be able to choose to be able to enter the workforce, and then also allowing women to be able to earn a living that's equal to their male counterparts. And so you see that in today's debates about equal pay. Um, that was a key thing for emancipation is that women would never fully be freed from the legal um, you know, subservient position that they had occupied unless they were able to go out and be economically self-sufficient. Does the ERA still matter? We're, yes. we're 100 yes. years. Okay, yes. it does. Yes, and, yes. <laughs> um, uh, g- give us more. Explain why this, um, in your mind, would be something that would advance uh, hopefully both genders. Oh, that's such a good question. And I want to be able to say a good answer that's not too long-winded. So, you know, one of the things I do in my book is I try to provide a new perspective on the reasons for the gaps between men and women's citizenship, or men and women's societal positions. Um, And the disadvantages against women, I argue, persist because protectionists create a confidence in the supposed equity, a sex-specific legal treatment during the original ERA conflict. So they put forward this idea that it was actually better for women if you treat them differently from men. But the problem with that idea is you start to discount a person's capabilities from the start based on their sex alone. And you don't see people as being functional individuals. Um, So one of the things I argue is that this idea that um, sex should determine a citizen's right is an idea that leads to the persistence of women's disadvantages because it, you know, is a prejudiced attitude that women should be treated differently for men on the sole basis of their sex. I just had a daughter. I have a couple mm-hmm. of real quick questions I have, uh, and then we'll wrap it up. But I, I just had a daughter and I want to know uh, who is the most underrated hero of women's rights? Who should I read to my daughter about? Oh, <laughs> there's a lot of people. Um, Give me you know, a couple. So one thing I should note, note that I want to make clear in my book is I wanted to get away from the idea of villains versus heroes. So I don't want people to So then my question that, really doesn't work then, does it? No, no, <laughs> no. I want to just say to you, when, I want to preface my answer because I might say somebody that was an ERA opponent and I don't want you to think, oh, if they're an ERA opponent, they uh-huh. had to be a bad person. Um, a lot of ERA opponents thought that they were doing the right thing and they had very um, well-meaning intentions because they honestly thought that the best thing to do for women was to empower them with protection. So they're, you know, Frances Perkins, their first secretary of labor, she's a great hero to, you know, read to your daughter about, but she was an ERA opponent, very much so. Eleanor Roosevelt was an ERA opponent. Um, so, you know, you see these people that you think are champions of rights and everything, but they just, in their minds, women had their own rights that should be protected, that women, it was actually going to be bad for women to have the same rights as men. But on the other hand, um, for ERA support, uh, supporters, Alice Paul is a big one, you yeah, know. Sure. Uh, Emma Guffrey Miller is pretty big. She's, you know, someone that gets overlooked a lot in the history of the ERA. And then someone who I have really gotten a big interest in is Elsie Hill, who was Alice Paul's very good friend. And she actually ended up marrying Albert Levitt and then divorcing him. Um, she just seems like such an interesting person and she's hardly ever talked about. So, What are the best, along with your book, what are the best movies um, that we can watch that capture this fight? Really oh, well. I'm going to, I don't know. Everyone gets, everyone has somebody. I feel like if I say something, I'm going to get in trouble with someone because <laughs> everyone has an so, issue. I, I'm, I'm reminded of an H, uh, do you know historians at the movies that, that yeah, is done on Twitter? Yeah. I'm reminded of one of the Twitter sessions where one scholar said that Legally Blonde was a feminist masterpiece. And my wife and I watched it and we loved it and we agreed and we said, boy, this is a really good description um, that's a great movie. How yes. People can, <laughs> of how of how people can go beyond the expected gender role. Yeah, that's actually a great idea. So th- yes, that's a good one. I haven't seen that movie in a very long time, but yes, <laughs> that is a good one. Um, you know, there's the documentary. I, so for the ERA course, I'm going to be teaching at AU. I'm going to have my students watch um, a documentary uh, on Gloria Steinem. It's like Gloria in her own words. That's a really really great. Uh, film that I highly recommend. 
I can't think of any others. I mean, there's That's Iron Child Angels on HBO, which some people have issues with. I, I liked it, but some people have really big issues with it. So, uh, Does being treated equally under the law always conflate to equal treatment in private life? That's a great question. And I think that that was something that ERA supporters were asked a lot. Um, is it really, if you just get the legal rights, are you really going to um, do away with discrimination, like de facto discrimination, right? Um, personally, from my own personal opinion, I think that a lot of the social influences that discriminate against women come from the bedrock of the law. So if you fix it in the law, you have a better chance of fixing the de facto discrimination. It's a starting place, but it's not, you know, the do all. It's not the um, final solution, you know. And the other thing is, you know, there's different interpretations of what the ERA would end up doing too. So it's an open-ended question, I guess, is my answer. Should America, and this goes beyond the question of whether America can, should America amend the Declaration of Independence to say that all people are created equal? Yeah, I, I would say so. Can we do that? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know. Is that allowed? That. I don't know. I don't think you can. I think it's a it's not like a living document. But it's like also a, not a it's also not a binding document, right? I mean, yes, I guess not exactly. anymore. It's not either. Uh, Canada just redid uh, their national anthem to, I guess it's from all thy sons command to all of us command. Maybe is that what they did? Oh, that's good. I think that that's important. I think that it's important to say persons and to recognize because for the longest time. Um, you know, it was understood that person, like for the longest time, it was understood that men were the true subjects of, you know, different things in law. One of the, like two of my chapters are titled like to be regarded as persons. That's one of the things emancipationists wanted was to be regarded as a person under the law because it was seen for so long that women weren't actually persons under the law. Dr. Rebecca DeWolf, the author of Gendered Citizenship, the original conflict over the Equal Rights Amendment, 1920 to 1963. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Certainly check out the book and her website, which is RebeccaDeWolf.com. She's on Twitter at out of the tower H. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and Today conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks.